Okay, this episode, we'll be taking a dive into manual therapy and the voice. And my expert guest, Walt Fritz, practices and teaches a radical new approach to this and other healing therapies, uh, making the patient an equal part of the decision-making process leading to healing. What a concept, right? After listening, you might have a little more you want to say the next time you visit your doctor or your vocal coach. You're listening to All Things Vocal Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Rodman. Join me for game-changing vocal lessons and advice from creatives and voice industry insiders who share the secrets they've found for personal and career success. Join us and be inspired to make your messages matter. My guest today is Walt Fritz. He is a physical therapist who works with vocalists and also trains and works with other professionals that vocalists go to for help. He teaches a unique interpretation of manual therapy to speech language pathologists, registered dental hygienists, and yes, we need those, voice professionals, massage, physio, and occupational therapists, osteopaths, and other people like that. So with his gentle, non-manipulative, and interactive approach, he advances a model of evaluation and intervention that encourages equality between patient and clinician using shared decision-making rather than the biomedical clinician as expert approach. And (laughs) we're going to be asking him what all that means. Walt presents his live in-person workshops internationally through his Foundations in Manual Therapy seminars that you can find at his website, www.waltfritz.com. He offers a range of online learning opportunities and his book, Manual Therapy in Voice and Swallowing, uh, yes, a person-centered approach, has just been released as of this interview. So Walt maintains a physical therapy practice in upstate New York, but right now he's with us over the magic of Zoom. Welcome, Walt Fritz, to all things. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me here, Judy. (laughs) Okay, well, let's first talk about how we sort of found each other, which was kind of through a a former patient of yours, right? Not a patient, a student, Gina Thurston, right? a student of yours. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Now, Gina, a physical therapist, I think she's from Nashville, correct? Well, she's in Nashville now, Gina Thurston. Yeah. And I've had her on all things vocal. And that's how I heard about you. So yeah, Gina's taken, gosh, a couple classes from me now. And she's acted as a teaching assistant for me at um, a seminar or two that I taught. So that was our introduction to each other. Yeah. It's it's interesting how we use what would you call that inner protocol approaches? Well, I, I yeah, I can see where you're going. I I just tend to refer to either a person centered or shared decision making model. That's how I tend to word it. But right. it is cross disciplinary in terms of the professionals that I work with, and it's certainly as much of a behavioral approach as it is mm-hmm. a tissue based approach. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's a traditional way that people think of manual therapy. Manual therapy could come under the like it's an umbrella term that massage, myofascial release, manipulation, laryngeal manipulation, they're all sort of subsets of manual therapy. And it almost always is that operator-driven, meaning the clinician is expert model. You know what? It works. Our evidence is just full of it for the past 40 years almost in terms of how it can help with vocal disorders, vocal disorders as well as the performing voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we can do better. Who am I to say, but I think we can do better. And that's including 
our client, patient, whoever you call the people you work with. I tend to use patients, including my patient and elevating their value in the encounter that I know a lot, but I don't know what my patient is feeling and fearing and hoping for and finds a value until I elevate their worth in, in the clinical encounter. So that's the big thing about what I do. Gotcha. I used to manipulate my vocal students, moving their head a certain way, you know, or putting it on their spine in a certain way that, you know, I thought was more beneficial, which it was. But then I studied some Alexander technique with a practitioner and I learned the art of suggesting. Do you use the power of suggesting in your approach as well? Um, I guess the power of suggestion is a tiny bit vague. I'm not saying that you're being manipulative about it, but the power of suggestion can be taken in an interesting and maybe not the direction that I'd want to take it. I guess the power of suggestion to me might be included in how I approach it. But, uh, you know, Alexander Technique or Feldenkrais in terms of that body awareness, that position in space, that sense of where am I and how can I best represent myself and be efficient with voice. Mm -hmm. It's just phenomenal work. And to transgress just a little bit, I really enjoy about the shared group of people that we're all involved with is there are so many ways that we figure out to help people. Yes. And I think it's natural, but I think it's unfortunate that when we help someone, we make this assumption that it was based on what we thought was wrong and what we did to make it right. Meaning if it's about a person's posture that we think is incorrect, and we make a modification, and I don't care whether it's a stretching modification Mm -hmm. or a strengthening modification or behavioral modification, when we do that, we make an assumption that, okay, it must have been their posture at play that was contributing to the problem and that remediated the problem. And there's some just lovely, simple logic about that. But when I look at any intervention, any interaction that we have with another human being, It's so much more than this little bit of what I think is wrong and what I think I'm doing. Meaning when I touch somebody and we find laryngeal tension, hypertension, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And we say, oh my goodness, look at all the tension there. That's probably why you're having this vocal problem. And we do something to manipulate it and the tone drops, the tension drops, and then they sing or speak better. That I can go into this little blinder world and say, oh, it was their, their inferior constrictor muscle tension. Okay. It is, but what caused it, right? Behavioral aspects, neurologic aspect, past learned experience aspect, et cetera. And then when I touch someone for intervention, the thought that I'm somehow magically jumping through everything else to get to that specific muscle that's in Mm -hmm. distress and then having selective input on it, I think is so myopic that we're missing the grander piece of how patient interactions are so multifactorial in terms of every aspect and every factor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just veer off for a second. Sure. Rabbit trails are great. Yeah, yeah. I was having a conversation for the first time with a university-based speech pathologist in the UK who wants to run a few studies on using my sort of work for head neck cancer-related swallowing disorders. And I'm like, I'm all over that. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. However, can I help you? And then looking at how a traditional research study is done where they have to narrow the scope to well, what muscle is at fault? Or, right, is it the fibrosis itself that's creating the problem? And again, we kind of had an interesting first date, if you will, without being inappropriate about that, because it's like, yes, muscles are involved, but is it just a muscle that contributes to somebody's voice swallowing or whatever problem? Or 
is it this complex array of issues that vary very differently from person to person? And then when we do an intervention, what is it that we impact, right? Because as a manual therapist, it's all about the issues in the tissues. People love those kind of terms, right? You've got an issue in the tissue that you need to come issue to me for help for. You know, it's a it's a lovely little bullet point thing to put on your business card, but it is so woefully inadequate and simplistic. And that's how I view my work, that I tell people when they come to take a workshop from me that they think they're coming to me to this class to learn some nifty hands-on skills to help with whoever it is they're working with. And I say, yeah, you, you might learn that, but what I really hope you come away with is the understanding and the willingness to start incorporating shared decision-making in everything you do, not just manual therapy. And I don't care whether you're a speech pathologist, a massage therapist, a vocal coach, whatever it is you're doing, mm-hmm. can you, can you, okay, I'm going to say this very respectfully, but can you step down from that pedestal of being the expert sure. Sure. and look at our patient as an equal? In fact, some ways they are much better versed in their lived experience than we are. And can I somehow get this to nurture their ability to feel that they have worth in something they might know nothing about? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's really what I look for. I just use touch and manual therapy as sort of the metaphor to get in there, mm-hmm. the, the route to get in there and encourage shared decision making in whatever form it takes. And by shared decision making, you're also talking about shared investigation, aren't you? Where Absolutely. You're sort of playing in the sandbox of where does that hurt? What does that feel better? Yeah. Exactly. Or where do you where do you feel this? How do you feel it? What does it feel like? You know, tell me in words or feelings or emotions or colors, what does this problem feel like to you? Mm-hmm. And so those mm-hmm. are some of the hardest questions that I ask my patients because mm-hmm. they're expecting me not to um, challenge them so much. And some of my patients, they move on to someone who will Just act give them as an expert. An answer. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and work from that, you know, let's do what I think is best for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I have a real world example of kind of what you're talking about. I've grown as a vocal coach too, from telling people what I think they need to know to asking people what they want to know and what they want to do, and then kind of investigating how we can make that happen. But weird issues, I love weird issues because they're so, in, you know, interesting, I guess. And, uh, and so if I can't figure them out, I will go to someone like you or Gina or <laughs> my classical coach or somebody else. You know, I love the people that work with vocalists that interact with each other to get some more information. But anyway, this girl that I was working with had a terrible eating disorder. In fact, we discovered it in her vocal lesson because she couldn't raise her arms out. And the investigation led to finally her admitting her eating disorder. And she's doing great now. But there was one day that she came in and she decided that her diaphragm was tight. And she could not sustain a vowel. She could not do it. And she was doing it before. So she thought there was something terribly wrong with her. And I'm thinking to myself, don't think there is, but I sent her to Vanderbilt Voice Clinic, who gave her some pretty expensive speech therapy, but also told her there was nothing wrong with her diaphragm. And she came back to me and we tried the same old vocal exercise that we were doing before. And just someone suggesting to her, that no, everything is okay, allowed her to do something that she didn't think she was capable of doing. So investigating 
together, we can find those roadblocks. And sometimes people end up crying and need actual mental therapy rather than a vocal lesson because we've unlocked something. You know, it's, it's like all this goes together and those little cords are attached to everything. If your big toe hurts, you've got an issue. I learned my work. It was called myofascial release was the term that I learned this work from that I'm not even going to go into it because it's meaningless in the context of this interview, but myofascial release, the way I taught it was, you know, it was definitely a silo based approach in terms of it's Mm -hmm. all about the fascia. And they taught us that emotions were stored in the fascia, that until you release the fascia, a person never can really heal air quotes Mm -hmm. uh, from an emotional and physical perspective. And it Mm -hmm. was pretty, it was pretty narrow and rather heady type stuff as a physical therapist to be tasked with the responsibility for releasing someone's emotional past. (laughs) And, you know, I've evolved a lot from there. I still use the technique that one might identify as myofascial release, which is how I still continue to treat and teach. But I see that representation of emotions being stored in the fascia is just, I mean, it's just so, it's so wrong. But there's some lovely, really lovely research out there that sort of transcends psychology and touch and talks about how touch in a contextually appropriate fashion can foster the sense of awareness of a person's priors and how priors impact the present. And it's not just through touch. I mean, all sorts of somatic and non-somatic based interventions. The vibrations of singing. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And dance and, Mm -hmm. and yoga and you name it. I mean, the potential is there. I tune in on the research with touch and that sort of impact. But we have the the opportunity to, and without repeating too much, to touch someone at a deeper level. Yeah. One of my favorite questions when I treat or when I evaluate is, what do you feel? Mm-hmm. Now, talk about an ambiguous question. And sometimes people will just sort of stop and look at me and they'll say, what do I feel or what do I feel, right? Like, do you mean, does this hurt? Or are you asking me sort of a psycho-emotional question? Um, and it's like, I know my lane, I'm a physical therapist, et cetera. But I'm also you know, pretty persistent. And I'll simply say right now, as, I, as we touch here, as you feel what you're feeling, what do you feel? Because very often, much as you described, people do go into that that psychosocial aspect of this disorder, this problem, and how it limits them, the fear that they have surrounding and affecting their career, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I use touch as my medium and you use different interventions, but yet I think we're kind of sort of all trying to get at that same aspect. Mm-hmm. And I do think that when we simply manipulate someone's larynx as if it's an issue in the tissue, we're really almost wall off those opportunities to allow somebody to kind of feel deeper and really take a look at themselves. Yes. You know, I think humility is a very important sort of characteristic for a professional that works with voices because so much it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg. And the bottom line is what works, what helps, what unlocks it. Let me ask you something that I was thinking about when I've setting up this interview. I've watched a couple of your interviews where you've worked with patients once you you touch them in a certain way and, and they find relief from whatever it is they want relief from, how does that continue when you remove your hand? Yeah. So one thing that I've learned from some of the older models, well, actually parallel models, circumlaryngeal treatment, laryngeal massage, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. is 
they use something called tapering, where, for instance, in circumlaryngeal treatment, they'll, you know, crank the larynx around and they'll drop it. And then what they'll do is they'll have the patient begin to voice. If the patient can get a better voice, a clearer voice or whatever it is you're working with, then what they'll do is they'll begin to taper their pressure off to see if the patient's own internal mechanisms can begin to hold that right? Because the one thing that I don't want to do, and I don't think many of us want to do, is create a sense of dependency where they need to keep coming back to me, or even worse, where I sell them on coming back to me regularly. If they want to come back, that's fine. But I would love to foster independence, right? So it's about tapering. It's about seeing if they can then hold those gains. Mm -hmm. Now, I could create an entire two-day class on why is it that when we work with someone, change happens, whether it's a behavioral pedagogy type experience or whether it's a manual therapy experience, because traditionally we we explain things from the blinders of our, our camp, so to speak. I used to say, until we release that restricted fascia, change will never last. Other people from an exercise-based perspective say, until you're strong enough, change will never last. Mm-hmm. Or until your posture is improved, change will mm-hmm. never last. You could go down a list and just keep, I mean, we could go on forever and the things people say. And That's while amazing. there could be kernels of truth and all that, what are the common denominators there? And personally, I think a huge common denominator is if I'm working with someone and we get them to a place where their voice feels less fatigue, less painful, less strain, more in where they want it, that not only is an impact here, but up here. Oh, yeah. Where they now see that they have the capability and the resiliency to change. Mm-hmm. And I that's one thing that I try and foster with my intervention. Sometimes my homework is, you know, it's not do this thing 10 times, three times a day, which is what they expect from me. But my my homework is, can you picture yourself being capable of change? And that's a hard one for people mm-hmm. because they've been told they've got all these injuries. They've been told they've got all these problems. They've witnessed all these things that didn't work. But here it is right now in this moment where they feel different. And I like to foster that sense of potential. And often that's a big step in, yeah. in why why changes last. You're showing them that it's possible to have yeah. that tension yeah. released and then they get curious. And yeah. the next step is then why did that happen? How can I do that? Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I talk to my students in kind of easy terms like the lizard brain. I like that because it's a funny term anyway. It's very primitive yeah. and it likes to do yeah. what it's learned to do and it trusts yeah. what it's learned to do and it doesn't want to do anything else. So if we want to actually change our habits, we're going to have to teach our lizard brain to trust something different. So the step one is actually to experience something different. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Oh, it's absolutely. You're, it's spot on. We're talking the same language. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Great. You know, I want to go back. If I, if you'll allow me. Sure. I go back oh, yeah. To earlier, because when I teach abroad, there's less of a line in terms of who's allowed to touch, who isn't allowed to touch ah, from a legal, yes. ethical, right? Because when I teach this work, manual therapy is still thought of as something that's happening from a physiologic aspect to the tissues, where I'm doing something to affect the tissues. And in the United States, there's this perception of a wall between the licensed professional and the non-licensed professional, Mm -hmm. where manual therapy is reserved for people who have a license to touch, physical therapists, massage therapists, speech pathologists, et cetera, et cetera. And a vocal coach 
isn't licensed to touch legally, so they shouldn't be doing manual therapy. And I think those mindsets are set up from historical models where if I'm doing something, it's viewed as physiologic and I'm affecting the tissue. Okay. Whereas vocal coaches, depending on where you live and your et cetera, et cetera, and, and the population you're working with, are often permitted to use touch based cueing. Correct? Where yeah, actually, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Get uh, your chin back, get your shoulders down, all of those things, which right. I think are really, really viewable as within the allowable acts that you can do. Mm-hmm. And somehow, I think we still are under the assumption that those are two separate impacts that touch based cueing is something that is potentially more of a behavioral impact right because mm-hmm. you're giving the person a cue to allow them to make change whereas manual therapy is seen as oh no we're changing the tissues right. and i don't know the anatomy there so it's about physiology and anatomy and all those scary things but when you really start looking at the current evidence for manual therapy that is seeing it so much that it almost isn't about issues in the tissues the tissues the local receptors are basically sending information up to the brain to see if the person can create change. And what I'm envisioning is it's more of a screen between touch-based cueing and manual therapy than an actual wall. A voice coach who's allowed to use touch-based cueing, you may be actually impacting your patient, your client, your, your student in a nearly identical or an identical fashion as I am when I do this, but I hold it thinking I'm affecting whatever it is I think I'm affecting. And I think that sort of kind of clears the air a little bit to say, well, can a voice coach be using manual therapy? Well, probably not if you call it manual therapy, but the principles of touch-based cueing aren't that different from the principles of manual Mm -hmm. therapy, at least from this more, I want to call it the more evolved status than some of the historical ways we view issue in the tissue manual therapy. I'll tell you, since Zoom, you know, since the pandemic and everything is over Zoom for me, I've used something that I was using before, but only now since I usually can't reach my student to touch them. And it's biofeedback. It's telling them to touch themselves. Jeannie Diva was a precious vocal coach out in LA, and she used to call it the purposed touch. I was at a workshop and she demonstrated it and she took two fingers and just put it right in the middle of her neck where the thyroid cartilage bump is, you know, the Adam's apple for a guy and Eve's apple, as I call it for a girl. Anyway, she said, suggest, she said, tell yourself, just intend for that area not to tense. And it is magic. I can do it in a session at a mic and that, you know, pesky high middle voice place. It's always a problem. And everything will relax and and my voice will remember what the lizard brain forgot, you know, which is it can do it itself. Thank you very much. And I can also do it. I have a tick sometimes that happens when Mm. I have a scarf on my neck in the winter. And I don't know why, but I just developed it. Well, now I just put my fingers there and say, "Eh, you don't need to do that. And I stop. So it's a self-touch kind of suggestion that I can do with students, you know, touch the sternocleidomastoid or the occipital bone or the squint zone, wherever I'm sensing that that tension is messing with the instrument. So man, touch is, even if you touch yourself, if you know what you're doing or you intend something, it's amazing. Yeah. And I talk about this and it's one of the first things we talk about in the class. There are differences between self-touch and social touch in terms Mm -hmm. of how our brain reacts to 
self-touch, which is basically not much happens in our brain when we touch ourselves from an awareness perspective, from an alertness perspective. There's a couple of interesting papers that if you're interested, we can link these in the show notes, but where these researchers were basically, they wired someone's brains <clears throat> to see what was happening when touch occurs. And then they asked the person to touch themselves. And what they saw was not much change in activation center. But when social touch happened, when someone reached out and touched them, mm-hmm. it's like, whoa, there was a lot of reorganization going on. And not to not to say that self-touch can't be effective, because it certainly can, but but social touch, and I, I include what I do, and it sounds like from what you do in mm-hmm. that social touch category, mm-hmm. it opens up different parts of the brain. So instead of other touch or social touch being better, it's different in different. some ways. And sometimes yeah. I do think it's helpful to have an external stimulus, just like it's it's helpful to have a coaching session or whatever it is we're doing. But then sometimes we can we can have enough control to just touch and say, don't tense up, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I also find fascinating is if you polled 100 people on what happens when you do that, 100 experts, like, like, I'm going to include myself, you and I, they're all going to say something different. They're all going to report so many different things. And you know what? They're all going to sound really smart and authoritative, but there's a good chance that none of them are completely right, which is for all of them are. troubling or it's reassuring to say we don't know the answers. <laughs> and I tell my patients all the time, I may help you, but I may never know what was truly wrong with you, which is both yeah. disconcerting and maybe a little bit reassuring, you yeah. know? Yeah. And by the way, what you're talking about with self-touch and, and someone else touching, that's the reason when I get my hair cut, my hairdresser's shampoo of my head feels a whole lot better than mine. I cannot replicate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you remember those things that oh, were yeah, I've got about one. 20 years ago, those costs, right? If you do it to yourself, it's, it, it's, it doesn't it's do a it. very different experience that when someone does it to How you strange or, is that? Or, or with you, right? And I, I, I just thought that up right now and to, or remembered that. I have no idea if that would fall into the category of what this researcher no. was looking at. But I would guess that there there is something that aligns well. You watch a person's brain when that happens. And it's just, it's just fun stuff. Fascinating. Yeah. So what are some typical vocal issues that can be helped by the way you interpret manual therapy? So if we stay within the realm of sort of the medical model, the diagnoses, it's muscle tension dysphonia has always been historically one of the, well, it's one of the first things that they really looked at, at least within the speech pathology and ENT literature Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, of can manual therapy be helpful in more than just an in-the-moment type of way for muscle tension dysphonia. And it certainly can. And it's been shown to be one of many effective interventions for muscle tension dysphonia. But, you know, you sort of get a crossover with singers in muscle tension dysphonia, or at least maybe not the classic diagnosis of it, but a lot of the similar signs of it. Oh, yeah. It's almost like saying you've got a virus. You know, it's like how much muscle muscle tension do you have to have to have MTD? So, yeah. Right, right. And then again, we go back into what is muscle tension? What is tongue tension? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's, it's pretty fuzzy what we're really working with. Mm -hmm. But definitely people who are singers and vocal athletes who are dealing with issues relating to tongue, jaw, floor of mouth, laryngeal, breathing, chest wall type of tension, pain, post-surgical, post-radiate, you know, I don't want to to paint too broad of a brush with it. But I'm a generalist and I see if somebody comes in to see me, you know what, let's see if touch is helpful for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just the person with a voice issue, 
But a lot of the, the clinicians I've, I've trained in this work are working with people on a regular, almost nightly basis as, you know, their, their vocal coach who travels with the performer and they're doing warm up and cool down and they're incorporating aspects of this hands-on work. And, you know, they're seamlessly slipping it in there in ways that are far beyond my understanding because that's their craft and art. And that's what I really love about this. I don't teach you how to do your job. I teach you possibly how touch may be one of many interventions that you can begin to incorporate. Mm -hmm. And I love the feedback that I get from professionals on how they've used it because it's just amazing. I I can't touch everybody, obviously. And I also can't work with everybody that you work with. Yeah. My sample size is exceedingly small compared to the sample size of yourself or a lot of the clinicians that I work with. And it's just so validating to hear how they took these principles of yes, of manual therapy touch, but then of the bigger piece of shared decision making and empower the patient to play an active role in a model that traditionally doesn't give them an active role. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I answered your question by not really answering your question. No, so you I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a follow up opportunity. Is there anything specific <laughs> more you want to know? Whether it's now or later, feel free. No, because I think muscle tension dysphonia is at once one of the most common issues I deal with, but also one of the most frustrating ones because it's attached to more than you think, and and you really need to help them relax all the guarding, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes that's through that understanding that I have options, right? That what he talked about earlier, can you feel that you can be different? Sometimes it's through teaching self-work. Sometimes it is through maybe a semi-regular or regular intervention. It's never my recommendation that somebody come and see me twice a week for the rest of their life, okay? Yeah. That's just too self-serving and we don't have enough evidence to show that actually has meaning. But if that performer or athlete or whoever this is finds that what we're doing together has value to them, boy, then I'm glad to be a part of that Mm -hmm. without me selling on dependency. Okay. So someone comes in and they have this curve in their upper spine, which is causing their diaphragm to kind of collapse inwards because the rib cage is dropped. And that is definitely interfering with their control, their vocal control. How would you go about helping them, you know, straighten their posture out where they're not sway backed and they don't have the dowager's hump beginning and yet also flexible? Yeah. So you asked a very complex question. You can come in from a lot of different avenues. Let's stick with that hypothetical for a moment, though. If that person walked in and said, I have a problem, what do you think? Then I've got a choice. I could go into my posture brain right? My posture affecting anatomy brain. And I could come up with some evaluative conclusions and some treatment recommendations. Well, we need to stretch the front of the chest. We need to strengthen the spine extensors. We need, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We need to free up the diaphragm in terms of manual therapy. We need to do cognitive behavioral work to get them to readjust to this posture. But often what I'll do is before I make those decisions on my own, I'll ask them, well, what do you think is at fault? What do you think is at play? What do you think is contributing? Because a question like that often is an incredibly blended answer where they'll combine both what they feel plus what 
Dr. Google told them, plus what their vocal coach, plus what everybody else has told them. So you get this array of responses. Oh, that's, gr- that's great. What I want to make sure is that that I'm not conflicting with their beliefs and, and who they trust. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move out of this realm for a minute. Let's go into back pain for a second. Okay. They come into me and they say, you know what? I've been dealing with this back pain and I keep going to physio and it says, you know, I need to strengthen my core and I keep doing these exercises. It doesn't help. And I think I'm just not strong enough. Right. So they've given me a huge piece of information. And first of all, the exercise didn't work, but they keep doing it. All mm-hmm. right. Um, that tells me a lot that they believe that their core strength is the problem. So then I'm going to transition. I'm going to take my normal head off and I'm going to stick on my core stability cap on and say, well, it certainly could be that core stability. But you know what? There's a lot of other people who believe it could be other things. All right. Let them know that there's uncertainty. Now, you voiced your question, your example, from a perspective that that Dowager's hump, that kyphotic position is compromising the diaphragm, creating an inefficient, et cetera, et cetera. And that's an entire plausible possibility. But how then, and I'm really good at being an annoying devil's advocate. <laughs> no, so I love it. How then, how then do you rationalize the singer, the performer, the elite level singer who has a dowager's home and still sings with incredible clarity, right? To me, that sometimes challenges our biases because if you've got that person who is showing what we believe is pathologic, but they're having all these successes, how then do we look at both of those, right? Because sometimes somebody can have really crappy posture, but still live a wonderful life. Or conversely, they can have tremendously beautiful posture, but have lots of problems. Mm -hmm. So- what, what we all do is we reach into our bag of experience and training and we apply that filter of what we've learned with that person. And that could be we need to open up the chest wall. We need to you know, free up the spine, stretching, exercise, behavioral kind of, of things to see if that helps. But remember in the beginning of our talk, I said, don't ever make the assumption that what you thought you did was why they got better. Because even though I think I'm stretching the front of their chest wall, and they all of a sudden can begin to perform better. It could be that stretch, or it could be a new awareness that I help them come to of, oh, I can be here, right? Yeah. Maybe I could have yeah. been here all along. Yeah. I just never knew what it was like to be open like this. Right. There's just two possibilities yeah. of thousands. That sense of what do you feel right now, which can then give them that connection of what they feel now versus how they hold themselves. And for me to say to that person, in order to have optimal voice, you need to be here. I'm making a massive assumption on another's lived experience, past and present, that I don't think I should be taking that liberty. I'm willing to explore the edges of those boundaries with them. But I want to find a place where my patient, my client, feels more effective, but also it's a safe place to be. Oh, yeah. I think that from a trauma-informed perspective... We all have the opportunity to be very influential, but also we can rip the Band-Aid off when none of us are prepared to have it. Yeah. Totally well put. Yeah. Yeah. I am all about creating a safe place for a voice to come out. (laughs) Yeah. 
I can't tell you how many trainings I've taken, and I'm going to use your example again, of you walk into the room and you're talking about posture, and the first thing you do is bring somebody up on stage, and it's up, and I'm, I'm making this up, right? But the first thing's out of their mouth is the reason this person is having breathing issues is because their posture is poor, right? They, they made these assumptions based on the simple narrative of what they're trying to teach and sell. Right. And then all the students say, oh, then this posture is important. We need to fix that in order to the person to breathe better or sing better. And you know what? They do it and they do breathe and sing better. So everybody goes home thinking, well, there's the answer right there. But I've been to way too many magic bullet seminars that each teach, you know, God's answer to the problems of mankind. And they're all helpful. What is it about that that makes them all helpful? I go back to the common denominators of you're actually an expert, placebo and contextual factor, Mm -hmm. who's telling a person what might be helpful, and then you're giving them interventions that could be useful. Mm -hmm. But I think our ego gets in the way of us realizing that it's simply one recipe that isn't the answer to all problems. Well, in the way human beings are, you can take something and especially if you, you've learned it from what you consider a safe place and over apply it and turn out very stiff. Or if you've got scoliosis, you're in, you're in pain, just trying to be completely upright. Many times this student will come in with one issue and I really feel like this thing needs to happen for them to go forward. And then this next student comes in and it's the total opposite issue. And I end up saying the opposite things to these students if I'm doing well. So why does this work and this work? And, you know, I really rely on talking to doctors and other coaches that I respect, like, why do you think that happens so that maybe I can help the next person a little bit better? That is such food for thought for all of us who work with people and all of you listening to All Things Vocal who maybe want to take a little bit more charge of your experience with your vocal coach or your doctor or whatever. Yeah. Make sure that you're actually feeling safe enough to say what you think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one thing that I, I start every interaction with, and I try and teach my students that in terms of the people taking my workshops is that one of the first things I tell my patients is this work will work so much better if you give me your input in a way that you might not be used to giving me input. I'm going to be asking you for input in ways that might make you uncomfortable because you might feel like you're not a medical expert. You're not a whatever expert. And I'm going to say to them, if you don't contribute, I might not be able to help you as well. And I think that gives them incentive to say, okay, you know what? This is what I think. This is what I feel. And what I want to be really careful of, too, is to allow their free association to not be judged, which is not easy because a lot of people have been judged, especially, I don't know about in your role, but in the medical role, a lot of people really bite their tongues because they've been told by an expert that, no, that's not how the body works. But what they're giving us is just such a deep clue into the tapestry of them as a complex human being. And I want to nurture that instead of saying, no, we only have five minutes here. Be quiet so I can tell you what's wrong with you and what to do about it. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> yeah. So to me, that's one of the starting points is basically setting the ground rules that this is shared decision making. And I do this. I said in no relationship is our decisions always equal. But I think most relationships fail 
if it's always one-sided. Mm-hmm. So I said, I want to keep this relationship as balanced as possible. And I'm going to be cueing you to help you become an equal partner in this relationship. And again, sometimes that's the harder part than, than the touch-based work. Yeah. And this works for even music production because I've known producers who want to put their stamp on the artist instead of pull the artist out of themselves. I have a vocalist who could sing really, really strong if he wanted to, but he prefers to sound soft, to sound more gentle. And I need to help them midwife them, not towards the voice I want them to have, but towards the voice they want. And, you know, it it does unlock sometimes abilities they didn't know that they had, but at least it's what they end up wanting. And so we're more midwives for birthing the babies. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, tell us about your book. Ah, so the book was way too long in coming. They all are. Stop working with a publisher. The book (laughs) is called Manual Therapy for Voice and Swallowing. It's published by Compton Publishing, a UK-based publishing firm who does a lot of voice-related type literature. And it essentially is my view, not just on manual therapy. First of all, that manual therapy doesn't always have to be the traditional laryngeal manipulation, but we can have a slower method that number one is better tolerated by a lot of people, but number two, allow shared decision-making. And you know, if one thing gets written on my tombstone, it may not be manual therapy. If there's not a lot of space, it's going to be promoted shared decision-making in a variety of settings because I think that it is just, it's super important. So the book is all about that. It talks about the background, my background a bit, but also looks at manual therapy from the concept of the tissues, but also from the concept of the human being and how we can apply that. And then there's just a whole load of, if you want to call them techniques, the way I teach people in the live seminar and my online courses, et cetera, et cetera. And Ideally, it gives someone ideas on how they can begin incorporating this. Mm -hmm. And I do hope that the vocal coach listens back to what we talked about earlier, that I don't see really much difference between how I might hold somebody in a long duration stretch, which could be, Judy, it could be 10 minutes I hold someone here. But that's for reasons that are more my reasons Mm -hmm. than tissue reasons, right? Mm -hmm. That their impact in a very quick sort of touch could be equally or potentially differently impactful than the type of touch that I both use and teach. Mm -hmm. So I think there's take-homes here from understanding that touch is the common denominator. Mm -hmm. How we touch might be less important. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Well, tell me about your online seminars and courses. Yeah. So the online seminars I have are essentially three that are dealing with this area of voice following related mm-hmm. disorders, a introductory class, which is the one I primarily teach when I'm on the road. And then I've got an advanced class and something I call balancing the body, which is more when we move into, I'm not as fond of the word posture for a number of reasons that I'm not going to, maybe on the next podcast, I'll bore you with that. <laughs> okay. But we talk about the concept of posture as, as a way to have choice with movement versus posture as the place you should be, right? Posture should never be considered a static ideal, but 
giving the person option and choice so they can have variety when things go wrong or get mm-hmm. bad. So there's a course that covers that. And, you know, the online courses follow along the line of my live trainings and I teach the live trainings oh, a couple of times a month, both in the United States and abroad. I teach in the UK once a year, which is just oh. a blast. We just, just got back from being there and we taught some classes there. And we have some UK listeners here. Do it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm back next summer in London and Exeter and um, up in Newcastle for a laryngology conference next December. So anyway, lots of opportunities. I also do these little one hour deeper dive classes. Some of them are pay classes. Some of them are free classes. Actually, this podcast is probably going to take a bit to edit, but in two days, I'm teaching a one hour free online course on my deeper dive series. It's going to be available live as well as on a recorded version. You know, manual therapy for voice and swallowing to give the the learner a little bit of understanding what it's about. I also have a free class on shared decision making. Oh yeah. Awesome. That was presented from the context of a massage therapy conference. But so there's a couple little phrasing that makes it more massage based, but yet the concepts are pretty universal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just about collecting money from people. It's about sharing information through some of the free resources, as well as a ton of YouTube videos and, and other podcasts on my website. Yes. And we can get to those YouTube videos from your website too, right? Yep. Yep. They're all linked. Walfritz.com. Do you have to have medical credentials of some kind to take your courses? No, no, you don't. And it's not that I want to just open the door to anybody, but I open the door to anybody who might benefit because I get a lot of people who aren't, okay, here I go with the air quotes, who aren't licensed to do this work. (laughs) But yet I've gotten, for instance, ENTs taking the class, not that they plan on doing it, but they want to know how it can apply and when to refer. I get it from voice coaches who some might use aspects of it, but then they know how to maybe refer outward, or they can can use some of the principles possibly to teach Mm self-work. And I occasionally even get family caregivers or performers themselves wanting to come and learn some of the work. So it's a fun mix of people. This has been a fascinating conversation to say the least. So thank you so much for coming on All Things Vocal and sharing all this and good luck with your book. Got it. Available on Amazon and the ebook um, is supposed to be out any day from Amazon too, not just the print book. But I want to thank you for feeling I had something to share with you and your audience because I am very honored to be on your show. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Let's keep in touch. Okay. All right. Bye. And that wraps up my fascinating talk with Walt Fritz. Look for links in the podcast notes and subscribe so you don't miss an episode of All Things Vocal, the podcast for voices with messages that matter. 